This is State of Water. This is State of Water. State of Water. State of Water coming at you right now. State of Water, a podcast focusing on clean water issues and their relationship to policy, equity, community, and climate. Featuring captivating interviews with Michiganders from many walks of life, State of Water is the official podcast of the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan, a program of the nonprofit organization Title Track. Hey, this is Jenny from Title Track. If you resonate with what you're about to hear, put those feelings into action. Take the first step toward getting involved by going to titletrackmichigan.org slash contact to sign up for our mailing list. Welcome to the podcast, folks. We're so grateful you could join us. in the midst of a global pandemic, an unprecedented time in the history of our people. It is times like these that remind us what's important and what is essential for human life. Now is the time for solidarity. Now is the time for action. As we see our communities here in Michigan struggling with this crisis in a myriad of different ways, it is clearer than ever how vital it is that we keep up the fight in demanding that access to clean, safe drinking water be recognized as an inalienable human right. With that charge ever present in our minds, we here at the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan want to thank Governor Gretchen Whitmer for making the essential call in issuing an executive order this past Saturday requiring all public water suppliers in the state to restore service to homes where it has been shut off. We want to extend a grateful shout out to We the People of Detroit, the People's Water Board Coalition, Flint Rising, Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition, Michigan League of Conservation Voters, the Michigan Branch of Clean Water Action, and all who have been working tirelessly to have the water turned on. On this episode, we feature one of those tireless workers, Sean McBreardy, Michigan Legislative and Political Director with Clean Water Action and a coordinator for Oil and Water Don't Mix. Just hours before Gretchen Whitmer issued the executive order, Seth Bernard was on a call with Sean, having this empowering conversation about Sean's work, what led him to this path, and what we can all do right now, today. Here's Seth Bernard. So, Sean, thanks for taking time to join us here. We're living in unprecedented times. Uh, we definitely want to touch on uh, everything that Clean Water Action is doing to respond to COVID-19 and to protect the human right to water and protect water for sanitation. Also, at the end of the interview, we want to take some time to just look at big picture information about Clean Water Action and yourself. Um, does that all sound good? Yes, 
sounds perfect. Thank you. Glad to be on. Thanks for joining us. So let's just talk about the water shutoffs to begin with, all right? So, um, you know, as uh, some background on this, um, so it's been widely reported um, so far that, you know, over the last several years, residents in a lot of our cities in Michigan, including Detroit, Flint, Saginaw, Benton Harbor, several others, um, have been facing rapidly increasing water prices and then getting their water service shut off um, when they can't meet uh, the unreasonable prices being charged. And over the last few years, uh, lots of organizations led by several frontline community groups in those communities, including People's Water Board, We the People of Detroit, um, Flint Rising, several other groups um, have been leading the way to get the water turned back on in these communities. Um, and then in light of COVID-19, um, we uh, saw a few weeks ago, Governor Whitmer and uh, Mayor Mike Duggan of Detroit announcing that they would be turning water back on uh, for customers who had had their water shut off. And as we all know, we're in the midst of a global pandemic where your number one line of defense is being able to wash your hands um, and you know being able to hydrate yourself to make sure that you're keeping your immune system uh, working at its best potential. So we have been following the lead of these frontline organizations, including People's Water Board, We the People of Detroit, Flint Rising, and others, um, in calling on Governor Whitmer as part of the COVID-19 response to um, activate whatever powers she can, including deploying the National Guard to set up water distribution centers and also hand out sanitary supplies and cleaning supplies. These are important, these are very important steps in normal times, but during the midst of a global pandemic, they're absolutely necessary to flatten the curve of COVID-19 and make sure that this disease is not spreading um, as quickly as we've seen it spread in our major cities and communities across Michigan. We believe at Clean Water, we believe that water is not, um, you know, a convenience of the few, but a human right that everybody deserves. And this pandemic is highlighting the fact that water is a human right and something that's necessary for all of us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Sean. Another piece of information, and this is a project that you have been working on diligently for years, is Line 5. And, and so we had a big piece of information come out in the last couple of days. A lot of people may have missed it because of the times that we're living in, but it's very significant uh, that the UP Energy Task Force uh, released their report. Could you please talk about that and talk about what the public can do to um, leverage this report? Absolutely. Um, so the uh, Upper Peninsula Energy Task Force um, was established by Governor Whitmer last year, and they were given two charges. Um, so as we know, just as we know about the water injustice in communities across Michigan, specifically in Detroit, Flint, and other communities in Southeast Michigan. Um, we know that water in those communities, uh, they pay among the most expensive water rates in the country, which is entirely unjust. Um, then in the Upper Peninsula, where we have a problem with um, rural poverty um, and a great amount of people living in poverty in the Upper Peninsula, 
they're paying some of the highest energy rates in the country, and that's entirely unjust as well. Mm. Um, so the Upper Peninsula Energy Task Force was founded to do two things. Um, in their first year, which um, ends at the end of March here, their charge was to look at the situation with propane specifically in the Upper Peninsula. Who's providing propane, um, how residential customers are getting propane, and looking at the whole system for flaws, um, what might cause propane shortages, and things like that. And um, then for the second year, which uh, is starting here pretty quickly, the task force is supposed to look at the energy picture in the Upper Peninsula as a whole, um, so including electricity, national, uh, natural gas, and other things. Um, so now the propane report, a draft report, was released earlier this month, and um, what that report does essentially is it shows that the main flaw in the Upper Peninsula's propane delivery, um, and I guess I'd back up, Propane is a large source of heat for a lot of Upper Peninsula residents. Um, there are roughly um, 20,000 uh, residents in the UP who get their heating source from propane. Um, and so what this report shows is that propane in the Upper Peninsula is unfortunately dependent on, um, a lot of it is dependent on Enbridge Line 5. Um, it's a small amount of propane, but it's a large amount of what is used in the Upper Peninsula because the population up there is smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, now, yep, if Line 5 were to go down with a rupture or something like that, um, what this report shows is that the Upper Peninsula would um, have some problems retaining their current level of propane. Um, It also shows that uh, the infrastructure, specifically Line 5, um, you know, is a risk. Um, And because one way or another, that pipeline has had problems in the past and will likely have problems again, as we've been saying for years. Um, The good news is that this report shows that there are many alternatives um, that are affordable to make sure that uh, the UP and um, to put a point on it, UPers right now are almost beholden to Enbridge because Enbridge is running essentially a monopoly um, on propane in the Upper Peninsula. And it's not good for the future of the UP for these people to be um, you know, held by a monopoly of an untrustworthy foreign corporation. Um, so luckily this report points out many different alternatives to providing propane uh, to Upper Peninsula customers um, with broader distribution from different sources so that the UP is not dependent on just one source and a monopolistic uh, source for their propane, which in the long run um, you know, would drive costs down, especially as we increase energy efficiency and work towards um, electrification of heating resources. Um, we would see prices for heating go down in the Upper Peninsula. Um, and this just shows that it's necessary uh, to shut down Line 5 to make sure that Upper Peninsula residents um, you know, are able to maintain the heat that they're getting from a more distributed variety of sources instead of relying on one very risky source for their energy needs. Absolutely. And so, yeah, and so that, uh, that report... Uh, the draft has been released. 
and it can be viewed um, at the Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy website. Um, they have a whole section on the Upper Peninsula Task Force. And from that website, you can also, um, now is a public comment period through April 6th. So, um, you know, you can go on there, read the report, read the recommendations, and especially for Upper Peninsula residents, their voices are very important to this process. And I can tell you throughout the meetings of the Upper Peninsula Energy Task Force, they heard from a lot of UP residents who are very concerned about their heating resources and about propane um, and who know that they need more diversified sources to make sure that their propane delivery can continue and can actually drop in price uh, from what they're currently paying um, to you know, have this really risky Line 5 infrastructure um, dependent on a, such a large portion of propane in the UP. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that information. Yeah, so Line 5, you know, it's an ongoing battle, and we've seen the media really flooded by Enbridge. Uh, Enbridge has spent millions of dollars on ads, a lot of them very misleading um, in terms of the information they're providing about this being a necessity for Michiganders. Can you talk about a little bit more about where we're at with Line 5? So many people, so many organizations from the Great Lakes Business Network to Oil and Water Don't Mix Coalition um, to the tribes um, have really uh, taken lots of different approaches uh, to, to shut down this extremely risky pipeline and unnecessary uh, pipeline. We have three lawsuits in play right now. Can you break those down for us, Sean? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and you know, you're right. I like the fact that you bring up that there's, um, you know, there's tons of nonprofit and citizen organizations, um, the Native American tribes of Michigan and the business community have really been united. Essentially, the small business community that depends on Michigan jobs um, have been really united over the last few years in um, pushing to shut down this pipeline. And currently, where we are is um, there are three ongoing lawsuits, and I'll break those down. Um, the first one that was filed was Enbridge versus Michigan, which, um, so if folks remember during lame duck of 2018, the Michigan legislature passed a law uh, to allow the building of an oil tunnel through the Straits of Mackinac. Um, something we think is an incredibly foolish idea. Um, in response to that, when Attorney General Nessel took office, she um, you know, rightly determined that that law did not comply with the Michigan Constitution because the title of the law did not match what it actually does. And so she issued an Attorney General opinion to that order, which Attorney General opinions are binding in Michigan on state agencies, uh, so they have the force of law unless they're challenged and overturned in the courts. And so um, that lawsuit in uh, October of this year, um, the uh, first court that heard it uh, ruled in favor of Enbridge, and since the governor and attorney general have appealed that lawsuit, and it's working its way through the appellate process right now, and, you know, everybody kind of knew from the beginning that this lawsuit is going to wind up in the Michigan Supreme Court. Um, and that is who is going to be making 
the final ruling on that. And then another important lawsuit in this, and the other one that's really moving forward right now, is the people of Michigan versus Enbridge, which is something that um, Clean Water Action and the Oil and Water Don't Mix Coalition and the tribal governments and people have been pushing for for a very, very long time. Um, And that's a lawsuit that Attorney General Nessel filed, um, which argues that back in 1953, when Enbridge was granted a state easement to build the pipeline through the Straits of Mackinac, the state did not consider the possible damage to public trust resources, waters and bottomlands of the Great Lakes, um, when they issued that permit. So Attorney General Nessel's argument is that since it's the state's job to protect those resources, and the state Supreme Court has held that it's a high and solemn duty of the state government to protect those resources, since they failed to consider that, the easement itself should be considered void. And that lawsuit is um, has not been heard yet. They had a scheduling conference in January, and um, at some point in mid-May, they're supposed to have the um, first oral arguments in that. So that case is moving along as well, and that is a very likely avenue to be able to shut down Line 5. Now, other things going on around this right now are Governor Whitmer also ordered the Department of Natural Resources to review every single easement violation that Enbridge has committed since 1953. Um, And that process is ongoing um, from documents that have come out from the state asking Enbridge for all sorts of documents going all the way back to 1953. It looks like they're doing a really thorough job at looking into this. And that could wind up being another avenue for Governor Whitmer to revoke the easement based on the multiple easement violations that are not curable, which means they can't be fixed. Um, So those are sort of the legal things going on. In the meantime, um, one interesting thing that, so it got reported in one news story, um, but it was the day before the COVID-19 pandemic really started picking up steam in Michigan. And so it was kind of buried after that. The um, organization that was founded from the lame duck law to oversee the building of the oil tunnel through the Straits of Mackinac, called the Mackinac Straits Corridor Authority, um, held a meeting where Enbridge announced that they had hired the contractors to build the Great Lakes Tunnel. Um, And now we did some research into the history of these contractors. Um, One of them is JD Contracting out of Livonia. Um, Another one is a Japanese company. I forget uh, the name of them off the top of my head. But so we looked into these companies. We find out that JD Contracting um, is currently being sued by Macomb County um, because their their shoddy work was uh, responsible for the... Fraser sinkhole in Macomb, if folks remember from a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. when a giant sinkhole formed um, in Macomb County that houses were like falling, not into, but really close to the sinkhole houses were like falling off the foundations and stuff. Um, JD has also been accused of um, some 
some schemes in Detroit in the early 2000s, one of which they were supposed to build a tunnel for Detroit Water and Sewage District. Um, they used uh, the wrong type of grout or something, and the tunnel flooded three months after it was completed. Um, mm. And it was so bad they couldn't even go in and redo it. So, so these are the people we're putting in charge of building a tunnel through the Straits of Mackinac for running oil. Um, really uh, shocking. And then the Japanese company that's involved is actually currently not allowed to bid on projects in Japan uh, because they were found to uh, be guilty of bid rigging and fixing, um, fixing bids for some major projects in Japan. So Enbridge, who we already can't trust, has hired two contractors who we can't trust and have a history of incompetent work uh, to build a tunnel through the Great Lakes. It shouldn't make anybody sleep sound at night. <laughs> so, Sean, what, what can people do? What can our listeners do right now? Well, um, one thing we can do is to comment on uh, the UP Energy Task Force report mm -hmm. and just make sure that the Energy Task Force is hearing the message um, that, you know, Line 5 needs to be shut down before there's a major problem in the Great Lakes. Um, another thing that they can do is go to oilandwaterdontmix.org, um, which is our campaign website, and sign up there uh, to make sure you're getting our campaign updates. And we have action alerts that go out whenever there's something that people can do um, to take action on this. Um, and we have all sorts of things from, we've had lobby days, lots of protests, um, events, um, down talking to the governor's staff about this issue, um, all sorts of things that folks can do to get engaged on that. So if you go to oilandwaterdontmix.org, mm -hmm. uh, you can sign up, get on our email list, and um, you know, you'll hear about all the things coming up around that issue. Thank you, Sean. It, one of the things I love about this community uh, of organizations in Michigan is how well we work together, and 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 it truly is a community. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the People's Water Board and We the People of Detroit, fantastic organizations, Flint Rising. Um, amazing leadership. Monica Lewis-Patrick uh, is going to be the next interview on the, the State of Water podcast. Um, you're talking about oil and water don't mix and this lawsuit of the people of Michigan versus Enbridge. Um, Jim Olson was the last uh, interview in the series and just a public trust expert and, and uh, longtime supporter uh, of the Great Lakes. Um, how does it feel for you, you know, working with Clean Water Action and so often working in Lansing and, and leveraging a, a policy to be a part of this community and to have this community support? Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, we have such a wonderful community of activists around Michigan. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a privilege to be able to work with these people. You mentioned, um, you know, Monica Lewis Patrick, um, and it also, so Sylvia Orduño, um, Michelle Martinez, mm. Justin Onwenu with Sierra Club in Detroit, um, Nayara Sharif, Flint Rising. Mm -hmm. These people are so inspiring. Um, our frontline activists who, um, you know, gosh, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm lucky to be able to learn from these people um, and to 
follow their lead and the really heroic work uh, that they're all doing right now to make sure that they can get the water turned back on in communities that don't have access to water right now. Um, it is just such an incredible community. And Jim Olson, who you mentioned, I mean, Jim is uh, you know, the public trust water guru <laughs> legally. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, Jim fought Nestle for 10 years um, and won. Um, mm-hmm. It takes takes a lot to be able to fight a major corporation like that. And so being able to um, you know, just pick Jim's brain about legal issues is um, always very enlightening. Um, it's, uh, but yeah, it's really a wonderful community of activists and not to mention the army of supporters that we have mm-hmm. from every corner of the state um, who, you know, without people getting involved after, you know, sometimes whether they're working jobs they love or working jobs they don't like, but to take the time to get involved with us um, in their free time, without that, we wouldn't have anything uh, as far as pushing for environmental change and for protecting our water in Michigan. Mm. And you talk about all these people around the state that that are willing to help, and, and, and I'm noticing more and more all the time there are people who are starting to take action steps, starting to get involved with organizations, volunteering, uh, taking steps into political advocacy. Um, what tips do you have for people? What works at what times? You know, um, there are so many different uh, strategies that we use um, from, from boots on the ground and protesting and showing up to uh, making phone calls and scheduling meetings to doing fundraisers and canvassing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, one of the beautiful things, uh, one of the beautiful things about this movement is that everybody has a role to play. Um, And we've seen it across the state. We've seen certain business leaders um, really step up and do everything they can to protect our water as business leaders. Um, I think specifically of, uh, you know, some of our friends at Cherry Republic, and I think of Mm -hmm. Bell's Brewery, um, and a lot of our businesses across the state. there's folks who are comfortable with making phone calls but maybe don't want to knock on doors. Great, make some phone calls. For folks who want to get involved in activism, um, I think, you know, first take, take whatever step is easiest to you. Um, get involved with a group and a cause that you care about um, and really go from there. There's no magic to getting involved. There's just doing it. And strategy, tactics, stuff like that, you pick up um, along the way from working with, um, you know, some, uh, I can tell you, have picked up a lot from some of the um, amazing people that we've already mentioned a little bit today with uh, Sylvia Arduino, Monica Lewis-Patrick, um, and throw in Brian Newland, the chair of the Bay Mills Indian Communities. Um, you know, Brian is just a wonderful advocate, not only for his community and not only for Native American people across Michigan, but for all of us. Um, and the more you're able to be around and learn from people, the more you're able to sort of, um, you know, pick up and take on more. Nobody starts out doing everything, but if everybody starts out doing something, whatever that one thing is that maybe you're comfortable with doing today might lead you to doing something else tomorrow. 
Absolutely. And so let's talk a little bit about your background, how you got involved. I, I find it fascinating to when I, when I speak with these leaders on this podcast to really go back in time and, and to see what inspirations people had in their lives, teachers, mentors, um, books, music, and then how, how people got started. And, and, you know, I know so many people that are leaders in this movement that went door to door with Clean Water Action at one time in their organizing career. So for you personally, um, you know, how did you start to get interested and, and passionate about this work? And then how did it become your livelihood? Well, I think it all started um, when I was when I was a kid. I I grew up um, in Fresno, California, in the Central Valley, and um, I went to, I went from a place with uh, historic lack of water resources to a place that's overflowing with them. Um, and um, but growing up in Fresno, Fresno is also um, you know includes one of the most polluted zip codes um, in the United States. Um, all sorts of problems. I was the only, um, you know, I had a sister and two brothers, um, and I was pretty much the only one without chronic asthma. Both of my brothers were um, hospitalized on a fairly regular basis with asthma. Um, it was really endemic anywhere in Fresno, and it was all environmentally caused. Um, some of it from different things than the challenges we face in Michigan, but it was still there. And one of the early inspirations that I had um, was actually reading uh, what is still my favorite book today, uh, reading The Grapes of Wrath mm. uh, by John Steinbeck. And looking around, living in the valley that Steinbeck was talking about, all of the uh, Okies migrating to, and looking around me and realizing that not much had changed. The only difference was now some of the Okies owned the ranches and much, much more of the people working the fields were brown-skinned. But that was the only difference. The deplorable conditions were still there. Um, I worked as a firefighter in, uh, when I was 18 on the west side of, the, of Fresno County um, near the coastal range right by Interstate 5. And um, you know, some of the things that we would see is a mainly farm worker community um, and watching the conditions um, in some of these farms, going out on calls um, as a firefighter because you know, the nearest ambulance company was 45 minutes away and they'd have people uh, you know, passing out in the field. The farmers referred to it as valley fever, um, but it was essentially from being poisoned by pesticides while they were picking fruit. Um, a lot of that stuff weighed on me heavily. And when I started getting involved um, from more of a political angle, um, it was in 2007, and I had done a couple things politically before, but really in 2007, uh, Obama was running in the Democratic primary, and um, I was in school in eastern Ohio at the time, and went down to his field office and volunteered. And... Um, volunteered throughout the Obama campaign. At first, I was comfortable talking to other college students. By the end of the campaign, I was um, you know, canvassing, recruiting people to canvas, running phone banks, um, and doing everything I could. And from there, um, you know, I never really 
looked back, had been involved in different movement work since then. And in 2011, you know, I found Clean Water Action when I first moved uh, to Lansing and started out as a field canvasser. And you know, I learned a lot doing that. I was exposed to a lot of uh, really great activists and leaders. And I have been there ever since. I'm in different roles working to, and you know, it's an interesting perspective coming from a place where there's a desert, an irrigated desert with constant droughts and all sorts of inequality problems to a place where we're surrounded by 20% of the world's fresh water and a duty to protect it and all sorts of inequality problems and people still can't get access to water. Um, and so it's something I really care you know, very deeply about. Um, I think a lot of Michiganders realize the importance of the Great Lakes, but not a lot of Michiganders have lived somewhere where there's no water. <laughs> and I think it gives me a little bit of a different perspective on the absolute necessity of protecting this. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So last year, I was so honored to be invited to perform music at the, the Great Lakes Awards that you all hosted in Lansing. We had a little clean water campaign trio. Uh, shout out to Dan Rickabus, who's our podcaster, who played drums that night, and Chris Good, who's our communications director, who played bass. It was, it was just such an amazing gathering of, of people from so many different walks who are dedicated to protecting the water, to protecting uh, people's human right to water. Um, so much representation, so many politicians, uh, you know, frontline leaders, tribal leaders. Um, can you talk a little bit about Clean Water Action, the Michigan chapter, and, and the unique personality of the organization? Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, you know, Clean Water Action um, was uh, a quick background on us as an organization as a whole. We were founded back in 1972, um, and our first goal was to get the Clean Water Act passed um, federally. And um, the organization was uh, influential at doing that. Our model of um, field canvassing and phone canvassing and getting as many regular people from across the country involved as possible um, hasn't really changed much. Um, we, uh, you know, we still do everything that we can to engage the public. And so it gives us an interesting role to play in um, normal times when we're not in the midst of a pandemic. We have the only uh, year-round environmental field canvas in Michigan. Um, and we have folks go out and knock on doors in you know, roughly 90 of the 110 statehouse districts uh, in Michigan each year and have people uh, contribute financially, become members, and also help out politically by either writing a letter, making a phone call, something like that to their elected officials. Um, so the role that we're able to play um, is really, so I'll tell you about one of the projects, for example, that uh, you know, I was very glad to be a part of. Um, after the Flint water crisis, um, there was you know, a huge necessity for the state to provide funding to fix Flint. Now, Flint still isn't fixed. The funding still hasn't, uh, they, they, they never appropriated enough money to fix the crisis that, 
you know, they, I don't know that they could appropriate enough money to fix all the damage that was done in that city. Um, however, what uh, Clean Water was able to do was a couple different things. We were able to mobilize volunteers to help uh, Flint Rising with knocking on doors in Flint and seeing who needed water, trying to hook them up with water resources, education about what you can and can't use the water for, things like that. And then with our field canvas, we were able to go out into districts all across Michigan, knock on doors, and have our members write letters to their elected officials so that, um, you know, everything from Democrats in southeast Michigan to Republicans in western and northern Michigan, uh, these representatives were getting letters from their constituents saying, we need you to use your power to fix Flint. We need you to vote um, you know, for the financial appropriations. And so we were able to mobilize our resources like that. And then we worked um, with Flint Rising and several other organizations to hold a few lobby days in Lansing where folks came from Flint. Um, some of our members came, our field canvassers came, and we went and talked to... If what you've heard in this episode resonates with you, take the first step to getting involved. Go to TitleTrackMichigan.org and click Contact to sign up for our mailing list. Which was, like I said, the beginning of the money that we need. But that's sort of the role that we're able to play is mobilizing statewide resources to address problems where maybe it would have been difficult to get lawmakers on board otherwise. So that's an idea of sort of the role... that we're able to play. We're, we have a large membership, over 250,000 members in Michigan. And so we're able to leverage that to get a lot of people involved. On line five, uh, in the last year, we got over 40,000 member phone calls um, to the governor and other elected officials asking them to take action on line five. It's huge. It's, it's amazing. It's such an uh, awesome confluence of of people power and working with other frontline organizations. And then like the League of Conservation Voters, which is another fantastic Michigan-based organization, the Michigan League of Conservation Voters, you have this 501c4 arm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we do have a 501c3 arm and a c4 arm. And the 501c4, um, for those who aren't familiar with uh, that term, is essentially a nonprofit organization that um, is allowed to take political action as far as endorsing candidates and um, you know, helping to elect environmental leaders across uh, the state of Michigan. And so we, um, and we do that during elections. We endorse candidates who are leaders for our environment, and then we work to get them elected. Um, this year, for 2020, we've made uh, one endorsement in state so far for Senator Gary Peters, um, who, um, you know, Senator Peters, one of the things about him is, you know, he's a work, he's, he's what they say, a workhorse, not a show horse. Um, he does so much more than most people know about. And Gary, um, you know, is really a humble 
person who doesn't tout his own accomplishments as much as he could. Um, but some of his accomplishments, I just list a few of them here. Without Gary Peters, we never would have got it on the record that Enbridge's equipment failed um, in response to the anchor strike because Gary called a congressional hearing in Traverse City, put Enbridge under oath, and made them answer questions. Um, without uh, Gary's work, um, Gary and Congressman Dan Kildee worked together uh, to be able to get um, the Air Force to put money into cleaning up uh, the airbase in Oscoda from the PFAS contamination issue. Gary's been a leader on PFAS. He's been a leader on Great Lakes protection. Um, you know, Gary was influential in making sure that the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative money uh, came into Michigan after Trump threatened to cut it twice. Um, so Gary has, uh, Senator Peters has really been a leader on our issues. We're thrilled to be able to endorse him. Um, in the past, some of the other endorsements that we've made um, that we're particularly proud of. In uh, 2018, we endorsed uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib for, uh, in the Democratic primary. And then we were able to mobilize our field canvas um, to knock on doors um, all throughout her district in the weeks leading up to the primary, which she won by a very narrow margin. Um, 2018, we also endorsed um, Attorney General Dana Nessel and our field canvas knocked doors across the state, um, talking to people about uh, Attorney General Nessel and what a wonderful Attorney General she would be. And she's um, you know, been an outstanding leader in office for us. Um, she you know, really puts public health, um, consumer protection, and the environment first. Um, and then there's a, a, a ton of others, really. I, I can't, I feel bad, I can't really name everybody, but another uh, great champion that we were able to work with last year was Representative Lori Pahutsky, um, who's a state house representative from Livonia, who uh, was actually an environmental scientist before she got into the state house. Um, and she's brilliant. She's young and she won a seat very narrowly. She won the general election by a little over 200 votes. Um, and she's just done a stellar job so far advocating for her constituents and our environment statewide. So, um, you know, we're very glad to be able to endorse environmental champions and talk to our members and talk to the public um, and working to make sure that these people get elected so that we can uh, have a legislature that values our Great Lakes and that considers water a human right. Mm -hmm. mm. And so we've had people come to us, you know, looking to do political work and we're, we're a 501c3. So while I do interview candidates and I educate candidates, educate the public with these interviews and our whole team, you know, does so much through all of our channels, um, you know, it's organizations like yours and the League of Conservation Voters that are there for folks who are really focused on taking political action. And then there are these people who who say things like, I don't I'm not interested in getting into politics or I, I hate politics. Um, you know, and, and it's 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 a conversation worth having to try to translate to these folks that that position is actually normally it's a it's either a position of privilege where, you know, we're not affected. We're, we don't see the way that we're affected by politics or, or you know, um, elected leaders to the point where it affects us and it's in our field of vision. 
or people are disenfranchised by the whole political system and feel so marginalized by it that they choose not to participate at all because there's such incredible distrust. Um, we've also seen members of our communities, people like you and I, Sean, have seen people who have transitioned from advocacy and organizing into uh, political leadership, um, one of whom uh, I interviewed at the beginning of this season of State of Water, Yusef Rabi, who, who won the, the Great Lakes Award uh, that, that you all gave last spring. Um, so what do you have to say to people who, who, um, who have that position, who are just turned off by politics, don't want to be involved at all? Well, um, you know, and, and I think uh, for there's a lot of people across our country um, right now who are feeling disenfranchised um, or feeling that um, maybe their elected officials don't speak for them, but speak for the corporations that lobby them instead. Um, and, you know, I, I really encourage people not to give up hope. Um, we can be disenfranchised from politics, but politics is never going to be disenfranchised from us. Mm. We're still going to be making decisions over our lives. Um, so the only way to fix that is to get involved. And even, um, even, if, even when it's hard to keep up hope, which it is sometimes, and maybe that's where music comes in, and we're grateful to have musicians like you, Seth, and your team uh, keeping people going. Um, but uh, when people are disenfranchised, a lot of times it's because they've been, you know, they've been screwed over, uh, frankly, by things that have happened in our government, um, yeah. especially the rapid disinvestment in communities we've seen really since Ronald Reagan became president. Um, and those people, uh, you know, they, it's very important for us to keep up hope um, and to keep engaging, keep being involved. Um, when folks are disenfranchised, you know, I just hope that they can maybe find one leader that inspires them. Um, and maybe for that sake, get involved again. Maybe one issue that inspires them. Because, you know, a lot of people don't like politics, but they do care about issues. They do, mm. Um, mm. you know, everybody in Michigan cares about the health of our Great Lakes. Some folks don't understand how that works. Um, everybody cares. Uh, and I think it's translating that and also for folks to realize that our country is founded on, um, you know, being a democratic society where everybody has a voice. Um, refusing to use that voice is saying something in itself. Um, mm -hmm. However, the politicians are not above us. They are public servants. Um, they're there to serve us. And if they're listening to corporations, maybe we need to vote them out. Maybe we need somebody, um, like I would point out, Alyssa Slotkin in the 8th District here in Michigan, a very tough district to win, who refused to accept um, contributions or influence from political or from uh, corporate from corporate political action committees, from PACs and super PACs. And Slotkin has been an outstanding advocate um, for her people. Uh, I think a, a, a great way of ending this disenfranchisement is getting money out of our political system. The corrosive influence of money in politics, um, you know, is seen all across. So we can go back to Enbridge and the oil and gas industry who spend millions and millions of dollars lobbying public elected officials. Um, if we can get money out of politics, we're going to see a lot fewer people who are disenfranchised and hopefully see people coming around to believe 
that together we can accomplish good things again. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said, Sean. Um, you mentioned music in there, so I want to, um, we're getting to the end of the conversation here, but um, I want to let our listeners know that you are a fantastic musician. And at the Great Lakes Awards, when our Clean Water Campaign trio came in to play music for people, you sat in on trumpet, and that was so much fun. Um, and you play other instruments, too, and I know you're, um, you're a tinkerer, too, so I, I'm really interested in hearing about how music plays a role in your life and and how you came into the creative practice and and how um it has helped sustain you with the work that you do yeah well thank you and it was it was so much fun to jam with you guys um Hmm. anytime i get an opportunity to jam with really good instruments live that's a great time um (laughs) and i started um i started in music in uh in fourth grade um we were lucky enough to have strong music programs in my school, um, which just a quick shout out State Senator Erica Geis, who has introduced a bill to require music and art education in Michigan schools, um, which once this pandemic yes. is all over, I really hope gets some attention. Um, yes. But uh, music played an influential role. I had a really great teacher um, who, you know, my family couldn't quite afford private lessons, and I had a teacher who would stay after school uh, two, three days a week for years and give me private lessons, Um, and I started really getting into jazz. Um, Trumpet was my first instrument, and afterwards I picked up uh, guitar, bass, piano, and um, I, I have a very broad array of music that I listen to from jazz folk um to blues anything really um and it's a huge influence in my life i mean i um when i'm having a rough day i like to sit down with either a guitar or a piano and play for a while um throughout the uh throughout these last couple weeks of staying at home one of the few times i get out is go on long bike rides and been listening to all sorts of, you know, what I would, I think movement music, um, there's a very broad category that encompasses a lot of, uh, everything from jazz to folk. Um, and, uh, I've been listening to a lot of that, everything from John Coltrane to, uh, the great Phil Oaks, uh, folk singer from the sixties and seventies. Um, and, you know, as you and I were talking earlier, Seth, the new Bob Dylan song that just came out, which is just this mind-blowing treatise on the Kennedy assassination and its role in history. But music is inspiring and keeps the soul alive. <laughs> it sure does. These times, I find, are it, it's a stress test for us for community resilience and, and so much of what we have needed to do for so long is really come into focus. You know, we need to guarantee water as a human right. We need to transition to renewable energy that's locally owned and operated. Um, And we have to have a way to regenerate ourselves and those around us with the stress of the world weighing so heavily on us. And um, for me, and I know for you too, uh, having the arts and having music in our lives has done that for us as advocates, as advocates, um, and I'm so glad you brought up the legislation to require music and arts education in public schools. So important. Um, 
And so I, I want to close things out here, Sean. You're a father, and and you have a five-year-old daughter, Mary. And yeah. I, I'm a I'm a, a daddy of, of a daughter as well. Iris is six, and so I would love to hear how your commitment to clean water expresses itself in your parenting. Um. Well, uh, it, it in a lot of ways. I mean, Mary was. Um, very excited to join me at the uh, youth climate strike in Lansing. She's apparently brought up with her preschool teachers already um, why we need to shut down Line 5, which her reasoning is so we can play in Mackinac Straits. And it's amazing to see how kids can kind of get this stuff from an early age. Um, At one point last year, she actually asked me, hey, Daddy, how come the oil boys love their money more than they love our Great Lakes? Mm. Mm. And... Just um, kids can kids can put things a certain way. So I think mm-hmm. you know, that's carried over a lot. And um, we also connect a lot through music, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably not surprising. Kids love anything musical. So got her playing harmonica, ukulele, a little bit of piano. She does a good job. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Just to wrap up here, Sean, we're practicing social distancing. You know, your work continues from home. We get to do this podcast. Uh, obviously, it's great to have these interviews in person. It's also wonderful to be able to to catch up with um, with folks in these times uh, via the phone and to be able to share it. Um, how can folks at home pivot, those who are used to taking to the streets and protesting? How can people um, continue to uh, leverage their voices and, and put this time to use to create meaningful and lasting change? That's, I mean, that's a great question. And I think, um, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of people and a lot of organizations are right now grappling with um, figuring out the best ways to do that. Some of the immediate things that can be done, check out Flint Rising, uh, check out People's Water Board, check out We the People Detroit, um, check out Clean Water Action. On We're all on Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we have websites. Go check us out. There's tons of actions that you can take straight from those places. Um, other things you know, that people can do include phone lines are still working. Um, we can still call elected officials and um, you know, lobby about the things that really matter to us. Um, we can still use, um, you know, one of the things that can really be effective as well is the tweet storms where, um, and just watch on social media and other avenues, you'll see organizations putting out requests and we want people to either tweet at an elected official or call them or email them. Taking any sort of action that we can online or over the phone is really the best thing to do in these times. I mean, we don't want... um, you know, we do need to practice social distancing and help flatten the curve. We can't be, uh, unfortunately, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the day when we can be getting together again in mass meetings and bringing lots of people together in person. Um, but, you know, I figure throughout all this time of social distancing, it also helps um, to be able to take some action and feel like you've done something for the common good over the course of the day. Mm. So I'd encourage people even look for a daily action that you can do. Maybe today you go check out people's water board and take some of the actions that they have. And maybe tomorrow check out clean water action, check out, um, we, the people Detroit, Flint rising, a lot of our other organizations that are really pushing on this work, Sierra club. Mm -hmm. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you so much for having me, Seth. Very good to talk to you. Always great to catch up with you. Keep up the good work. You too. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. What a boss, huh? State of Water is powered by the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. This campaign represents an opportunity to help place clean water issues front and center by partnering with environmental organizations across the state, by educating voters, and by urging every candidate running for public office to make a strong stand on critical issues affecting Michigan's waters. Using storytelling and music events across the state to amplify the groundswell of public support for clean water issues, this campaign is driven by Michiganders from all walks of life who share a similar priority, protection of our water. Both State of Water and the Clean Water Campaign are programs of the Michigan-based nonprofit Title Track. Their mission, engaging creative practice to build resilient social ecological systems that support clean water, racial equity, and youth empowerment. Stay safe, stay at home, stay healthy, and look out for each other. We'll see you next time. Don't miss an episode. Tune in next time.